Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, today was, in a way, a little bit of a free day because there isn't a major feast to be the theme of uh, the show, like um, the uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary recently and so forth. So I thought I would take the opportunity to go back to what is perhaps my number one favorite topic, which is the mystery of the Jews' failure to recognize Jesus when he came, the mystery of the continuation of Judaism and the Jews in this period between the first and second coming, the mystery of the role of the Jews in bringing about the second coming, the mystery of the dogma that we have that the second coming can't happen until there is a widespread conversion of the Jews, and basically the entire puzzle around the interplay between the church and Jews and Judaism in this phase of salvation history, that is the one bracketed by the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So to do that, I will base what I talk about on Romans 11, Romans chapter 11, which really is the mother load of church teaching, Christian teaching about the mystery of Jews and Judaism in between the first and second coming and the mystery of the Jews' failure to recognize Jesus. And I may go off on a, little, a few side tangents as I discuss that. Um, it, this is a live call-in program. The number is 866-333-6279, which spells uh, M-A-R-Y, Mary. So it's 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, or 6279. And um, very often in the shows, I ask for calls just to come in in the break in the middle so that they don't interrupt the uh, otherwise the flow of what's being said. But today, because it is a kind of open-ended uh, show on the theology of... of um, of the well, I shouldn't say on the theology, on the mystery of the interplay between um, Jews and the church, I will actually invite calls at any point. So if you wish to call in, I'll try to keep my eye on the call board and um, take your call. But that is, of course, <laughs> inviting calls that are, are um, more or less on topic uh, so that they don't um, hijack the, uh, the discussion from from where I am trying to take it. So anyway, with that, um, oh, I, I actually will not yet um, go into Romans 11. First, I want to lay a little groundwork. There are three themes that come up, especially in the Catholic Church, over the last 2,000 years with respect to the role of Judaism, the role of the election of the Jews in particular, after the coming of Christ. So I want to introduce the three terms, introduce the three concepts, and then go to Romans 11 and see what Romans 11 says about these uh, three 
issues and how how they are resolved very elegantly in Romans 11. The first um, term that I wish to introduce is supersessionism. Now, supersessionism is based on the word to supersede, um, that is to replace, to take over. And there are many different, um, there's a wide range of theologies which fall under the name of supersessionism. But basically, it is the teaching or the understanding that the church has replaced Judaism. And the more particularly, the people of the church have replaced the people of Israel, that the church is the new Israel, and therefore the old Israel is not the old Israel anymore, if you see what I mean. But all of the gifts, all of the call, all of the specialness that was associated with the Jews and Israel in the Old Testament has moved over to the church, that the church has superseded Israel. And um, a first cousin of that is called replacement theology. Obviously, the words supersede and replace are pretty close in meaning. And replacement theology is the theology that the church has replaced Israel as the chosen people of God, so to speak. And uh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm introducing these terms. I'm not I'm not answering the questions they raise yet, uh, because many of these issues uh, are not all black and white. In other words, you have to kind of answer them by saying, on one hand, yes, and on the other hand, no. And we'll see that as we go into the show. And the third issue that I want to introduce, which, thank God, is not a very burning issue today, but it was in the first few centuries of the church, and that is... Okay, according to the Old Testament, there was a special blessing that God gave to the Jews. They were under a special blessing as the offspring of Abraham. But because they rejected the Messiah when he came, that blessing has turned into a curse. And so after the death of Christ, the Jews are under a special curse rather than being under a special blessing. So those are basically the three um, issues that I wish to resolve by going through Romans 11. And since Romans 11 is sacred scripture and is in that sense, the word of God and infallible, we know that whatever Romans 11 says um, as a resolution to these conundra uh, must be correct. So um, I will simply launch into Romans 11. Uh, I will say that um, I'm having a little trouble with my uh, with my call board. So if if calls do come in, uh, I invite the studio to let me know because it's not clear to me that I will see them pop up on my end. Okay, Romans 11. St. Paul speaking. I'll just start at the beginning. Um, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, we haven't gotten very far in Romans 11 yet, have we? And we've already answered some of those questions that we raised. Obviously, uh, St. Paul is saying here, 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So I don't see how you could argue that the um, predilection that God had for the Jews has turned into a rejection of the Jews, that the blessing has turned into a curse, because here we have, I'll just repeat the verse, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So, okay, well, we can all go home now, right? Because we answered the question. Not quite. There's more to come. I will continue with Romans 11. Uh, Skipping ahead now to verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Wow. Okay, so we've already leapt into a huge mystery here. Um, I'll just repeat that and, and explain it a little bit. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. What it sought, of course, was the Messiah. Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it. There were a chosen few among the Jews, of course, who did follow the Messiah. As a matter of fact, everyone we know as the disciples and the apostles of Jesus were Jews who elected to follow the Messiah. And the 3,000 who entered the church on Pentecost Sunday And in fact, the early years of the church, the vast majority of members of the church were Jews. In fact, the first crisis in the church was, is the church only for Jews or are we allowed to let non-Jews into the church? So that elect was not a tiny number, but it was presumably a minority. Going back to St. Paul, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Huge mystery. The rest were hardened. I'll continue. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So here we already have this this huge fact introduced, which is that the failure of many of the Jews, or perhaps most of the Jews, to recognize Jesus wasn't entirely due to their own stubbornness and hard-heartedness and so forth but was, in fact, itself an aspect of divine providence that God wanted that to happen and God arranged for that to happen. As St. Paul says, the rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So I don't see how it could be more explicit in stating that, in fact, the failure of the Jews to recognize Christ was in some sense imposed by God as part of his divine providence for his purposes. Now, thank goodness, St. Paul does not leave us there, but he goes on to explain why God did this. By the way, let me just interrupt myself to say I am I'm reading from the Catholic edition of the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, and I am not adding a word. I am skipping some verses uh, in order to state the main line of St. Paul's argumentation, but every word that I'm reading is here in black and white in the text, because what I'm reading is actually quite scandalous. 
So I just want to make that clear. So going on to St. Paul's explanation of why God did this. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay, this is, again, very explicit and quite huge. Four times in these few verses, St. Paul says, and I'll just pull out the statement each time it occurs. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. So that was four separate times in just five verses. 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Four times St. Paul says the same thing, which is, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. The Jews had to reject Christ in order for the world to be reconciled with God. In other words, in order for the church to spread throughout the world properly, the Jews had to, by and large, not enter the church, at least until the time was correct for them to enter. Now, why would that be? Why would it be a problem if the five million Jews in and around Jerusalem at the time of Jesus had all entered the church. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? Well, in a way it would have been wonderful, but it would have been a severe impediment for the church to spread throughout the world. The church is meant for all of humanity. If I may say so, the Catholic church is meant for all of humanity. Jesus came for all of humanity. What God's plan was, what God would ideally like to see happen would be for every human being to be sacramentally within the Catholic Church. There is nothing, the word Catholic means universal. There's nothing about the Church which makes it um, intended to be restricted to one group or another group or another group. It's meant for everybody. However, Judaism was only meant for the offspring of Abraham, for the children of Abraham. And in fact, Judaism has never really been big on uh, evangelization or uh, recruiting, so to speak, bringing non-Jews into Judaism. Because by its very nature, the Jewish religion was kind of ethnically based. It was was based on the offspring of Abraham. If, in fact, um, if, in fact, the five million Jews in and around Jerusalem had all entered the church at the time of the crucifixion and shortly thereafter, first of all, it would have looked like the church was a continuation of Judaism and intended just for Jews or primarily for Jews, just like Judaism was intended just for Jews or primarily for Jews. And in fact, the very first crisis in the church, we see this in the book of Acts, it's called the uh, Council of Jerusalem. It was around 50, 51 AD. It required all of the apostles to return to Jerusalem to resolve the thorny issue, which was in danger of, um, 
of uh, impeding the spread of the church. And what was that crisis that had to be resolved by the first church council? It was, as I mentioned before, are we allowed to let non-Jews into the church or is the church intended only for Jews? Now, which would have meant that if a non-Jew wanted to enter the church, they would have had to first sacramentally become Jews, which, um, among other things, is a serious problem for males since it requires circumcision. It would also require, of course, following all of the uh, Jewish restrictive laws and so forth. There were there were some apostles, even uh, Saint Peter among them, in fact, who thought that um, that. Uh, let me take that back because I'm is not a hundred percent clear in my mind. But certainly there were some. I mean, which apostles were on which side of the issue? But there were some apostles who argued that the church was only for Jews and therefore Gentiles who wanted to enter the church would have to first convert to Judaism before they could then become Christians. Um, Thank goodness, of course, that first church council was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the council determined that that was not the case and that salvation through Christianity was equally available to Gentiles who did not convert to Judaism as it was to Jews, and the doors of the church were thrown open to the whole world, enabling the evangelization of the whole world. However, if the first five million Christians had been Jews, it would have been much harder to see that the church was intended for the whole world. So it was in fact the failure of the Jews to enter the church, which threw open the doors to the Gentiles to enter the church. And um, with that backdrop, let me go back to those few verses. So I ask how they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So now I think we, we have a context for understanding what those, um, that repeated statement means, that through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles, their trespass means riches for the world, their failure means riches for the Gentiles, and their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Phew, okay. But there was another clause in almost each of those sentences, which was... Um, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, look, if the Jews' failure to accept Jesus, to recognize Jesus, was this great gift to the world, just imagine how much greater a gift it will be when they accept Jesus. And this introduces the um, excitement around the um, uh, the tremendous grace which will be released when Jews enter the church en masse. And this is now beginning to introduce the concept of the conversion of the Jews, which must precede the second coming. Um, that is church doctrine that's been taught since the apostolic fathers, 
Um, as Catholics, we have it in the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674, says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. You can't have it much plainer than that. That was paragraph 674. The glorious Messiah's coming, the return of Jesus in glory, is suspended at every moment of history. He's just waiting to come back until his recognition by all Israel. And what will precipitate his return is his recognition by all Israel. In other words, the massive conversion of the Jews. I like to say wholesale conversion of the Jews. Um, and we'll get there. We'll get there because uh, Paul goes on to talk more about that in Romans 11. But I'll just um, point out right now that in the Catechism, when it makes that statement, it footnotes, it, it cites uh, Romans 11.25 as the scriptural basis, one of the scriptural bases for that teaching. Okay, so um, now... Uh, now, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the short musical break a little bit early, and I'm going to go into it now um, in order to uh, basically invite calls. If anyone wishes to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Yes, I do know how to spell Mary on my better days. Um, and uh, so I'll just play... Uh, I'll, I'll play a, a short musical interlude, and not surprisingly, the song that I'm going to play is Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, Come Lord Jesus, since that's kind of the theme of this show is the mystery of the uh, of Judaism between the first and second coming, and the mystery of the role that the conversion of the Jews has in bringing about the second coming. So with that, I'll go to the short musical break. And when I come back, I'll see if there are any calls and I will take the calls. And after the calls, or if there are no calls, I will continue with Romans 11. Um, and uh, I'll be picking up at around uh, verse, uh, let's see, verse 16, 17 of Romans 11. So with that, let's go to the music. Ven Señor Jesús, Maranata, Ven Señor Jesús, Maranata, Ven Señor Jesús, Maranata, Si ven pronto, Maranata, Ven Señor Jesús, Maranata, Ven Señor Jesús, Maranata, Ven Señor Jesús Maranata, si ven pronto Maranata. Come Lord Jesus, Maranata. Come Lord Jesus, Maranata. Come Lord Jesus, Maranata. Come Lord Jesus Maranata. Maranatha, 
called Harpa Dei, H-A-R-P-A, new word D-E-I, the Harp of God. And they're a small religious community. Um, the Before the, the issue with the virus, they were in Israel. Right now they're stuck in Germany. Uh, they have a, a YouTube channel. Uh, if you go to YouTube, you can find lots of their music. But I think you, you know, you can tell from the little piece that I played um, how enchanting and um, uh, inspiring and, and kind of lifting up to heaven their music is. Okay, well, I think we have a caller. So if you can put them on, um, what's your name and where are you calling from? My name is Maria, and I'm somewhere in the States. I, I, I'm watching you online. Is uh, is this live? Yeah, this is actually live, yeah. Um there, there's a oh, little okay. time delay, okay, but it's live. You, I hear you talking. I, I, that's a little confusing. Okay, yes. So this is being broadcast on online, right? Or no? It is being simultaneously broadcast both on uh, my YouTube channel. Oh, I see. Yeah, oh, oh I, I see. I see. Okay. Well, I'll get to my question. I'm sorry. Please. My question is this. You, it was said that in, in Romans 11 that that the Jews are under a curse, uh, and is that referred to they're not seeing and not hearing because they rejected Christ, or did it refer to a different type of a curse? Hold on. I'm sorry. Um, you, uh, you think that I said that the Jews are under a curse? Yeah, you said something about that, you know, that they were under a curse. That's, no, 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 no. But thank you for giving me the opportunity to clarify that. No, I did not say they're under a curse. But what I said was that there are several several views of the role of Judaism or the meaning of Judaism in, in between the first and second coming. And one of those views is that they're under a curse. It's an incorrect view, but it's a view that um, at various points okay. in the last 2,000 years has actually been pretty widespread. Mm-hmm. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was getting... <laughs> so, all right, so, the, so that has nothing to do... That was just a, a false view. It wasn't scriptural, all right. And and so, but they're not... The thing that they shouldn't see and shouldn't hear is just something that God did to them, but that has nothing to do with the curse. Um, that's right. Well, it's something that God did in order to enable the 
the um, church to spread throughout, properly throughout the Gentile world. Right. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Understood. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm glad. You, I'm glad you cleared that up, Roy. Well, I'm Thank glad you. you asked because I'm. I'm sure you're not the only one who um, was in danger <laughs> of, uh, of of going yeah. in that direction. So thanks a lot for your call. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And uh, you, thanks. Bye. 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 I don't know if there's any, I don't think there's any other caller on the line, so I will continue with Romans 11. And uh, by the way, um, St. Paul will address that issue that just came up during that call, so to speak. So I will continue. Now, St. Paul, um, <laughs> St. Paul picks up with his central image of the interaction between Jew and Gentile in this period in between the first and second coming. And his image is of an olive tree, the olive tree of salvation. And um, then I'll go into the words, he says, uh, starting with verse 17. So he's describing this olive tree, uh, this olive tree, which represents salvation. And he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. So you have this olive tree of salvation. The root is Judaism. Um, the original branches were the Jews. Uh, if, but, if you, uh, but some other branches have been grafted in. Wild olive branches have been grafted in. If you're one of those grafted in wild olive branches, do not boast over the broken off ones because remember you're not supporting the root the root that is judaism is supporting you i'll just repeat those two verses so you see i'm not making this up but if some of the branches were broken off and you a wild olive shoot were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree do not boast over the branches if you do boast remember it is not you that support the root but the root that supports you you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. But do, So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So here you have, and you all have almost the whole picture of the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the period between the first and second coming. The, the uh, original tree of salvation was Judaism. The original branches were the cultivated olive branches on those trees, on that tree. Some of those cultivated olive branches were broken off. That's the Jews who did not follow Jesus in order to make room to graft in wild olive branches. That's the Gentiles grafted into the church. Now, if you're one of those Gentiles grafted into the church, don't boast over the broken off cultivated olive branches. Don't say, ha, 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 I'm more important than you. Look at me. God broke you off to make room for me. If you do wish to boast, 
Remember, first of all, that you don't support the root, the root that supports you. Second of all, they were only broken off to make room for you. Third of all, God is fully capable of breaking you off too if you do not stand firm in your belief. And finally, even the others, the broken off olive branches, that is the Jews who do not follow Christ, may be grafted in again. And when they are, they will be even better suited to the tree because they were originally a part of it. As St. Paul said, even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. These are not my words. These are St. Paul's words. And I'm not making them up and I'm not editing them. They're right there in Romans 11. Um, uh, as he said, if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, I better go on because if I if I take a side road here, I'll, I'll never come back. So I'll simply continue. But I will go back later to this because this relates. No, I'll go there now. Remember earlier in the chapter, St. Paul said, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the Jews' rejection of Jesus meant the reconciliation of the world, of the entire Gentile world with God, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So you have this image of life from the dead. Um, and then here you have the image of when the natural branches are grafted back into their own olive tree, that it will have a revivifying effect, a kind of energizing effect on that olive tree. And this image of, of life from the dead and the branches bringing new life into that olive tree seem to be connected with the um, dogma, actually, of the great apostasy. Uh, that's actually from the Catechism of the Council of Trent in the 16th century. It states that one of the things that is certain to happen before the second coming is what's referred to as the great apostasy, which is a widespread falling away from the faith. I, I know some people think we're seeing that now. I mean, Europe used to be Christian, used to be Catholic, and now the EU won't even acknowledge Christianity as part of the history of Europe. We can think of the percentage of Catholics who used to always attend Sunday Mass until maybe the 1950s versus today, and so forth and so on. Um, that may or may not be the great apostasy that is is um, certain to precede the second coming, but it certainly is a rather widespread apostasy. The... Um, the teaching of the great apostasy is based on Jesus's comment shortly before the crucifixion when he said, if men are like this when the wood is green, what are they going to be like when the wood is dry? So you have that image of, um, of dying, something dying out, of the faith dying out. And here you have this image of um, 
what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And they grafted back in cultivated olive branches. And I think that this image is a very nice counterpoint to the image of the great apostasy. And together, what you have, and remember, St. Paul is threatening here in the last few sentences that God may break off the wild olive branches too if they lose the faith. So I think what you have a picture is uh, you have a kind of a a kind of a cyclical action here where there will be a falling away from the faith among Gentiles, which will be partially compensated for by the influx of Jews into the church. That is me extrapolating from the words of St. Paul. So um, not to be taken with scriptural weight or dogmatic weight. It's a mental image. It's a picture that I think emerges from this text, but there's a speculative action to it, uh, a speculative aspect to it. So I, I, I don't want it to be mistaken as actual church doctrine. However, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, and it's the picture that emerges in, in my mind's eye. Now, continuing with the text itself, we're now on verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Okay, so this is a verse that's used as the underpinning of the statement in the Catechism that there'll be a widespread conversion of the Jews before the second coming. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So you have this picture of... Once the full number of the Gentiles has come in, once the church has spread completely throughout the Gentile world as it's supposed to, then it will be time for the veil to be lifted off of the eyes of the Jews, and they will be free to enter the church also. And then the church composed of Jew and Gentile will be ready for the second coming. I will simply, now I'll just continue a couple of verses later. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Okay, so as regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies of God. In other words, they've rejected the gospel. But then he says, for your sake, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, because they had to reject the gospel in order to make room, so to speak, for the Gentiles to enter the church. So again, before lording it over them, remember that it was for your sake that they are enemies of the gospel. But then he goes on to say, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So I think that this sentence itself, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. That's enough to put to bed those um, f incorrect theories that I introduced at the beginning of the show, that somehow the blessing on the Jews has become a curse, because St. Paul is saying, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So obviously, they're not cursed. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And similarly, the whole idea of replacement theology, that the entire meaning of uh, Judaism and the Jewish people and Israel have been replaced by the church can't be um, 100% true 
in a kind of blanket way because St. Paul is saying the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. It's not going to be taken away from them because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Now St. Paul goes on, Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. This is a very big sentence. Just as you, that's the Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, that is out of relationship with God. Right at the time Jesus came, the Jews were in relationship to God, but the Gentiles were not. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy, right? Now the Gentiles are in relationship with God. They've received the greatest mercy God's ever given mankind. They are in the church. Um, uh, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, because of the disobedience of the Jews, right? Which was a pre necessary precondition for the Gentiles to properly enter the church. So they have now been disobedient. The Jews are out of relationship with God. So that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. Okay, so, wow, let me unpack this. Um, so they have now been disobedient. In other words, the Jews are out of relationship with God. They're not in the church. They're not sacramentally connected to God. In order that by the mercy shown to you, in other words, by the Gentiles, through the Gentiles in the church, they also may receive mercy. Just as the Gentiles were brought into relationship with God by the Jews, God has, by the Jews, Jesus was a Jew, right? God has arranged things that when the Jews are brought back into relationship with God through entry into the church, it will be through the Gentiles. Okay, The Jews essentially sort of prayed the coming of Jesus. <laughs> they prayed the church into being. Um, and it is up to the Gentiles to pray the Jews into the church. And why did God do things this way? God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. So let me try to tie this all together. Here's the picture. Um, at the time that Jesus came, the Jews were in relationship to God. They were in a state of so-called obedience. Um, if they had immediately entered the church, they would have never passed through a period of disobedience. They would not have recognized that this gift of entry into the church was a sovereign act of the mercy of God. They would have thought, well, we were always good. We were always in relationship with God. This is what we earned. This is what we deserved. And you, in fact, see that attitude in the New Testament, right, among the Pharisees, that somehow they own God, that God owes this to them. The Gentiles, when Jesus came, they were out of relationship with God. So when they entered the church, it was obvious to them that it was a sovereign act of the mercy of God. It was nothing they could have earned or deserved. But that was not the case with the Jews. So the Jews had to also now go through a period of disobedience so that when they are brought into the church, when they're brought into the church, it will be evident to them also that it's a sovereign act of the mercy of God and nothing that they could have earned or deserved. Um, I, I'll reread re those last few uh, sentences uh, in the light of what I just said. 
just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy upon all. God wanted salvation to be a sovereign act of his mercy. He didn't want it to be anything anyone could earn or deserve, or that anyone would mistakenly think they earned or deserved it. That wasn't a danger for the Gentiles, because when Jesus came, they were out of relationship with God, but it was a danger for the Jews. So the Jews had to go through a period of being out of relationship with God also. So when they're brought into relationship with God, it's evident that it's a sovereign act of the mercy of God. Secondly, as the Gentiles owe their entry into the church to the Jews, so to speak, since the Jews brought about the church and brought about the coming of Christ, so God wants that to be reciprocated and for the Jews to owe their entry into the church to the Gentiles. And with that, we can skip back to a verse that uh, occurred earlier in the chapter that I read by a little bit quickly because it didn't have any context to make sense at the time. I'm going back to verse 11. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It's what the Gentiles have in the church that's supposed to bring the Jews into the church by the Jews being jealous for what Catholics have. So, um, and that is, uh, whenever anyone asks me how I recommend evangelizing Jewish friends or relatives or neighbors, I think that's exactly the answer, which is make them jealous because of what you have, what you have with your relationship with God, what you have through the rosary and your relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary, what you have through receiving the Blessed Sacrament and the joy you have from from receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and so forth. They will be jealous, and they will want what you have. Mother Miriam, who has her own excellent radio show, whenever she's asked how to um, evangelize, uh, her answer is, live as though it's all true. Live as though it's all true. Live the Catholic faith as though it is all true and make it visible that it's all true and they will want what you have. They will be jealous. So um, I don't know whether, um, I, I don't think there are any callers and I have actually preached myself hoarse here. So, um, so I am not exactly sure. Um, I think what I will do now is I will go back and I will play. Um, I will actually continue because I actually interrupted that um, beautiful chant about halfway through. Uh, and um, uh, let me see how to do this. Uh, so I will go back to that chant. And I will play it again and invite, we have time for a call or two before the end of the show, if anyone calls in. And if not, I will wrap up on my own. So so with that, um, again, let me see if I can master the... Uh,
the homemade technology here that I'm using. And uh, let's just go to that chant of come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And if you want Jesus to come, remember, you have to pray for the conversion of the Jews. You have to bring about the conversion of the Jews. That falls on the shoulders of the Gentiles. That's what we've been talking about. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Si ven pronto, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha. Ven, Señor Jesús, Maranatha, si ven pronto, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Okay, well, I don't think there have been any calls, so I will simply um, tie things up by going back to the three issues that I started the show with, supersessionism, replacement theology, and whether the blessing has become a curse, and try to answer those questions in the light of what we learned from Romans 11. Uh, I'll, I'll do it in reverse order, uh, leaving supersessionism for last. It's the most complex. Well, we see that the blessing can't have become a curse. Uh, it's just in black and white here. I ask, then, has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God, but for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. So, I think there we have the issue resolved of the blessing becoming a curse. There we have the issue resolved of um, replacement theology in its more extreme forms. That is, that every every promise associated with Israel and the Jews has been replaced, has has been transferred to the church. I think that's in in um, uh, irreconcilable with the um, verses I just read. But I see we have another caller, so. Um, I'll be happy to take the call. Uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? Hi there. I'm Patty and I'm from Minnesota. Hi. Did you have a question or a comment? Yes. I once only heard in a priest homily that the Jews were no longer considered the chosen race. And I just wanted to hear your response to that. Um, well, I prefer if you hear St. Paul's response to that. He speaks with a lot more authority than I do. Um, I think it's a complicated issue. I think that they're not the chosen race in the sense that, you know, in that sense, God doesn't play favorites. I mean, everybody is equally precious in the eyes of God. However, um, again, as, as um, St. Paul says, 
as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, um, God made a promise to Abraham and to his seed forever, and God did not revoke that promise. So whatever is uh, implied by that promise is still in effect because, as St. Paul said, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Now, I would say that um, probably a better way to look at it is that God raised up the rest of humanity to the level of, let's say, favoritism that he gave to the Jews as the descendants of Abraham. So um, they're um, they're not favored over the Gentiles, so to speak, but the gifts and the call, the promises which were made to them are still in effect. It's just that God has extended that um, to all of humanity through the church, I think is probably the, the fairest way to, to characterize it. Um, does that help? Yeah, uh, thank you. Okay, okay good. Um, the, um, I, I only have a minute, so I, I better... I better hurry through this lest anyone be misled. There's another side to the coin of supersessionism, which is the sacramental value of Judaism ended with the crucifixion of Christ, period. So to the extent that the animal sacrifices that God set up in the Old Testament, the laws for purity, um, the laws for the remission of sins through sacrifice, that entire sacramental system did end. That was replaced by the church. So if you want to address the issue of supersessionism, of to what extent the church replaced Judaism and to what extent it did not replace Judaism, you have to separate out the election and the promise and say that the election and the promise have not been replaced with the sacramental system. And you have to say, yes, the sacramental system has been replaced and has no salvific value anymore after the coming of christ and um there's a whole letter in the in the um new testament that addresses that the letter to the hebrews um, and it's perfectly clear that the jewish sacraments lost their validity with the coming of christ so i didn't want anyone to be misled about that um so i guess that's it that brings us to the end of our time uh, I hope this was interesting. I hope I didn't um, dive too deeply down. And, and I know that I tied myself in knots occasionally, but I hope I untied them successfully. And I hope that you join us again next week. Same time, same place. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with me, your host, Roy Shoman on Radio Maria. And um, the topic today, of course, has been the mystery of the interplay between Jew and Gentile and Judaism and the church in the period between the first and second coming. And with that, I will simply um, fade out of the show with a continuation of that beautiful chant of Come Lord Jesus. And again, please join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. And let me pull up the music for you. Seigneur Jésus Maranatha Vieni Seigneur Jésus Maranatha Vieni Seigneur Jésus Maranatha Vieni Seigneur Jésus Maranatha Vieni Seigneur Jésus
Si tu ves 